going on, everybody, and welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Today's episode is a recap of some of my favorite responses from the Collector's Gene Rundown. As you can imagine, it was more than difficult to choose my picks from each question, so I figured I would just give you all a really heavy-poured cocktail of a few gems. You're going to hear from writer and director Paul Feig on what he's got his eye on next, and Ara Montanari on his perfect one-watch collection. We chat with celebrity and award-winning interior designer Nate Burkus on starting over and collecting diamonds and vintage cars. Todd Snyder on looking up to Meta's eighth employee, Matt Jacobson, and which we manifest on the episode, Todd's next shoot at his old home in Joshua Tree. As always, the MO here remains the same. Find something you have interest in, fall in love with it, and always stay curious. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to reach out if there's a guest you want to see join me for an episode. Without further ado, a few of my favorite moments from Collector's Gene Radio. What's the one that got away? Uh, it was that Ram and Brass uh, smoke station. And again, if this guy is listening, I will happily buy it back from him. <laughs> if he's not listening, just send him the episode so he knows it's top of mind. Yeah, exactly. We will do that. My dad offered to buy me a two-door Range Rover, a right-hand drive stick shift from, I think, 72 when I was 16 or 17 years old. And of course, at that time, all I wanted was a sports car. And, I, you know, I think it was $2,500 for the, for the truck. Really regret not having the foresight at that time to realize how cool a vehicle that was. And, of course, values today are, are much higher. Yesterday, I was on set for a shoot, and I confessed to everybody that I used to own a Lady Dior bag, and I got rid of it uh, because I was... Uh, lasting after a, a piece of jewelry and I needed to sell the bag in order to be able to afford the jewelry. And everybody looked at me like I was a complete lunatic. <laughs> and in hindsight, I regret so badly selling that bag. And it would have, I think the like value of that bag has increased enormously since I first owned it. And I, I, oh, I don't know if that's the strict definition of one that got away, but yeah, the Lady Dior bag. And there's probably countless other things that I have lasted over that, you know, I'm a huge vintage shopper, clothing and accessories. And I'm sure there's a whole host of things that I missed and would have been worth a fortune now. Ah, man, there was, there was a beautiful emerald. Oh, God. And I know exactly where it is, but it's a way. It's actually a sad story, but I know where it is and I can't get to it, but I'm praying I will get to it because if I get to it, the person that owns it means they're going to be okay. It's a personal story, but someone owns it and is in a very unfortunate situation but has the most magnif magnificent emerald I've ever seen in my life. How about the on-deck circle? So is there anything that you have your eye on, anything you're looking to, to add to a property or... You know, I just was on the Upper East Side today and I wandered into some store because it had like, you know, the Scalamandra, the kind of red 
background with zebras on it that Gina's restaurant used to have um, here in New York. And they had like a waste uh, bin and um, a little like um, Kleenex tissue holder thing. So I walked in there and they had this mix of like old and new and they had these really cool like stacking little benches that were like mid-century Italian leather with like brass kind of almost like bamboo legs. And I was like, oh my God, those are so good. <laughs> like must, must put on the list, you know? So yeah. I feel like I'm always looking, like I don't do eBay. If I do look for something, then I go down this rabbit hole and I do end up doing eBay, but I, I kind of stay away from it because I, I do enjoy finding it out in real life on my own. I'm always excited about them. I never know what I'm going to get. It's serendipity. I might not get one for six months or I might get a hundred tomorrow. So that's always sort of interesting uh, because you have no control over something that is out there somewhere that may or may not find you. Well, I've been, I, I always have collected this, but I'm kind of stepping it up now with old cocktail equipment. Um, you know, I've always loved old cocktail glasses. And and have collected them. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things I like to collect are highball glass sets, which they were in the fifties and sixties. They would make these, you know, highball glasses. You know, kind of almost like a you know, like a tumbler. You know, kind of a drinking water glass. It's it's kind of like like a Tom Collins glass, but just more normal glass. But you know, they're straight up and down cylindrical. But they would put them out in sets of of six in a rack in a metal rack with a handle that you would like fill them up and then you'd walk around your party if you're having a cocktail party and hand out these highballs um and i just love those uh, and so I, I collect those uh a lot of them the one my favorite ones are made by a company called culver which was out of the 60s and it was um they're the ones with kind of very kind of 60s 70s looking different colored glass with with like the the gold you know leaf on it or, or just gold kind of embellishments and those are just fantastic so i love those but th- but now i'm trying to collect more kind of vintage martini glasses i'm actually have one right here that my, my good friend um <laughs> darren the chef uh he, he, we he, we always call him and he's got a, a thing on Instagram called Calico Cat, I think it is. And he just sent me these amazing, these two amazing uh, martini glasses that the stem is is a guy, the head of a guy with a top hat on. And it's the most unbelievably made thing. It's from some old restaurant, he told me. And they're just spectacular. He sent me two of them. And, and so, so I want to get more stuff like this because, you know, I'm a cocktail, uh, a cocktail guy and a, and a martini fanatic. A watch that I think most people would be surprised to know that I that I like, but actually I I, I really I tried it on, and thought it was amazing. And it's an uh, Hishamil, it's an RM67 in titanium, which is like a really slim slim to the wrist profile watch that that just is very light and just feels very 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 cool on the wrist. Uh, what what's the unobtainable? The one that you you can't have, maybe because it's too expensive, or in a museum, a private collection. I would love to have a Rembrandt. That's my dream. Twenty four ninety nine in platinum. Uh, there's only two. They were both made in circa nineteen eighty eight for this uh, Patek Philippe auction. The one obviously sold in two thousand twelve for about just under 4 million at Christie's 
um, worth a ton more now. The other is remains in the Patek Philippe collection, but uh, that you know, I don't know. That watch could be fifteen to twenty million now, and it's just a special, special thing. There is something, and everyone kind of takes the piss out of me because I probably could. I, well, I can afford it, but I, I, I keep on going. I'm not going to. It's not unattainable, but it is unattainable to me. Uh, and that is the V4 uh, carbon um, Tag Heuer Monaco. That and the Dark Lord Monaco. Those are the two. Dark Lord Monaco. I've missed out a few times buying it. And now it's totally, uh, totally got out of my price point. And then the V4 as well. It's it's just a bit above where I want to pay for watches. And so it's it's one of those things that I, I ha- I've I've missed out on both. And you're very so they, disciplined. <laughs> they're they're the rare raritanium things that you just go and you know I can look from the look from the side and just go I love them but they're not they're not going to sit with me sadly. Every time I travel, I go to a museum and there are things that in every we just took our daughter to the Barnes collection uh, not that long ago and uh, even there uh, there were a couple of Rousseaus or a couple of Matisses that even though it's not necessarily my favorite period, um, I would have loved to take a few of those off the wall and uh, take them home. But I mean, I, I think that just means you appreciate fine things. The page one rewrite. So if you could collect anything besides what you currently collect, money, no object, what would it be and why? Diamonds. It's like single stones, fascinated by the cut, the clarity, by the scale. So I'd start grabbing big stones and just hanging on to them. And then I've always also loved old cars, but I hate the maintenance of it. And randomly, we have our place in in Montauk and we have a place in Portugal and our apartment in the city and we don't have a garage. So it is the most impractical <laughs> thing. Um, you know, like I, the, the idea of having some, a car collection is ludicrous at the moment. So you really just need a moak. That's it. Yeah, exactly. I would collect old top hats. Um, They are really something. I have one, one that I bought from um, this place in London, this guy, it's it's called Heather, Heatherington uh, top hats. And um, he, it's in a, it's in a, he lives in a basement apartment in Chelsea, right off of King's road. It's just a tiny apartment with a, min, a million top hats in there. But the thing about top hats is like, like walking sticks. The good ones are old. You know, you can go to Lock and Company and get like new top hats and stuff, but they're just not the same. These old right. top hats are just, you know, they're made of whatever it's the beaver fur. I know there's a million different types and, you know, they're so well made and some are t- real tall. Some are shorter. Some are gray. Some are black. And I just think they're just absolutely Gorgeous. I mean, you know, that's an affectation. I wish I could bring back. There's because putting on a top hat that fits you because he goes in and, and does it. And, you know, he has people that work for him who then mold it to your head. He's got this old machine that I've been desperately trying to find forever. Uh, I always look online to see if one comes up because it's from 100 years ago. And it was it was like a top hat fitting thing. It looks like a top hat. This thing, but it's a big that's piece amazing. of machinery. Yeah. And it's got all these sticks, these black kind of sticks that are in the shape of this top hat 
and they're kind of spring loaded. So what you do is then you put a piece of paper in the top uh, on the top of the top hat where there's all these little sticks and stuff that kind of come up. And when you put it on your head, it molds onto your head. And when it does that, it pushes all the sticks so that up on top where the piece of paper is, it forms this almost potato shaped thing that then they trace that and then they take it, cut it out, and then they put it into this other form that then they push around that the piece of paper and they put it into the top hat and then they steam the top hat so that it molds to that exact shape. So when you put it on your head, it fits like it was made to be on your head, like you were born with a top hat on. And it's just incredible. Um, and then he also does a cool thing where he, he molds the brim on the sides up almost like a cowboy hat where he kind of puts them up higher and it just makes it way cooler. So um, yeah, so I would, if I could get just a ton of those you know there's the one i have is like tall and there's sometimes i wish i had one that was slightly shorter um but i would love to just have a whole ton of those just one watch just uh, just one watch <laughs> yeah, just one watch just uh, maybe a petit philippe uh, chronograph perpetual reference 1518 because it's a very simple watch it was the first perpetual chronograph launch in the 40 and uh, it's a conic watch you know, the collector starting collecting what to buy this kind of watch. Does it? The only one watch. Perfect. I think I would collect houses. <laughs> <laughs> That's a T Swift move. Yes. I mean, honestly, I'm so jealous of the uh, baby boomer generation for the uh, relatively affordable prices of real yeah. estate. Because I'm just like, God, it's just passive income at this point to people who own all these places or and it's oh it's just when i think of getting a house i'm just like am i ever going to be able to own a house like it's just insane right now but yeah if i could do things if i had it my way if i could collect something that would be real estate i'm taking a class on imperial china right now at school and some of the old like scroll paintings that we've Aren't those incredible yeah but but i mean if money were no issue that is um i i just love old things and like i i would love to collect you know either old scroll paintings or um i don't know what it's called in english um but like old perfume bottles in the Song Dynasty that were made of jade and and like edged in. I think they're beautiful. I think like one sold at auction for an insane amount of money, but just the intricate details that you see in those perfume bottles. And it was like really like niche, but something like that. My nephew, John Christian, who lives in Austin, Texas, he did a, a little painting of my wall over my desk with with some of my favorite, you know, paintings and collections. And like, I'd rather have that little painting than I love. I love. There's a Georgia O'Keeffe show at the MoMA right now. Would I love to have a Georgia O'Keeffe? Yes, I would. <laughs> you and I both. But I, I think I'll stick with John Christian's paintings. Wooden boats, like cool wooden crisscraft. Uh, Italian, uh, all those different kinds. There's a whole genre of those, just like James Bondy, um, not really meant for salt water, gorgeous boats, 
all made by hand, you know, that you had to maintain like crazy every year or else they just rot. If you had an unlimited budget, that would be a really, really cool place to, to collect and have a place, you know, have a place where you're on the water where you can actually use them. That would be really, really cool. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants is Nobu Malibu. Um, oh, I think, yeah. I think that's my favorite restaurant on the West Coast. And just from the ambiance and the food and just sitting there on a Saturday afternoon, uh, you know, drinking a great bottle of wine or having some of their great cocktails. And uh, I would love to have that, have my name on that restaurant right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, me too. I love that place. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps I would start, uh, and I'm still thinking of starting uh, to collect uh, handwritten books and manuscripts. For me, it's fascinating, you know, it's just history, just a lot into it, art. Yeah, not, nothing's uh, handwritten anymore, so it's it, that stuff definitely gets more and more rare as the years go on. Right. I think being a dad and having two kids, I wish that I um, was collecting Legos over the years. <laughs> yeah, um, save you from buying them well, now. Yeah, I mean, you know, Legos are collectible. I mean, you know, there's people that run into like a Lego store, buy everything and stash it and then, you know, sell it on eBay for more. But th there's just a lot of, you know, being very, I mean, I was into Legos as a kid. Um, I, my mom saved them for me. Um, and so I was able to kind of bring them out when our son, I think I brought them out when he was like two. He was very young still, but I ended up kind of rebuilding a lot of the sets that I had when I was a kid, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, our, our, my whole life as a dad, um, Legos have been part of our our life, you know, um, building sets with him. And, and they're just such a good, uh, you know, toy, for lack of a better word, to learn so many important skills. You know, he learns to count, follow directions, be patient, you know. It's just, it's just you'd be creative. And, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you can't just buy sets all the time because they're expensive and especially older ones. Um, there's so many great sets out there. And uh, I wish that I just had, like, a bunch of them over the years, you know, even if I just bought like five a year and they were, and I and I, and you know, we would just go through them now and it would be so fun to just have like a hundred sets sealed and just start opening them all and just building them all with, with That's my great. son and daughter. Who do you look up to in the collecting world? This is a little bit cheesy, but, um, I think my grandmother, she's the ultimate collector to me. Um, and I've learned so much from her and she's this, you know, really eccentric little old French woman who's lived in London for like 70 years. She's a true collector. Her apartment is just this like Aladdin's cave. <laughs> you, you go inside and that is just, I can't even explain it. It's just <laughs> like for, she has, so, you know, like so fashion books everywhere and art everywhere and little 1920s sort of like enamel figurine ashtrays and there's like all these like really niche little things, art deco furniture, you know, like Murano glass bowls. She's the ultimate collector. And I think I get my bad habit from her. She, I remember when I was a kid just going through all her costume jewelry and, you know, she also wears layers and layers of jewelry still does I don't know how she you know can still lift her arms because she's got all these like, huge bracelets and bangles she's still just sort of like clinking away through the corridors and she had I remember this chest of drawers that was just full of silk scarves and you know you open it and it's like 
Hermes, Chanel, just all these like crazy vintage scarves. I think I've probably taken all the best ones by now, but it was like going to her house and it still is to this day. It was just a bit like shopping. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think my favorite person and he, he's, he is my hero is Matt Jacobson. I don't know if you know Matt Jacobson, but I sure do. He, he, he's talk about someone who has great taste. He is at like, he is a, he's an amazing dresser. Like talk about someone who has just great style, but then on top of it, you know, everything from his watch to his homes, to his cars, to yeah, that house in uh, Joshua tree is pretty insane. Oh my God. Apparently he sold it by the way. He sold it. Oh, well, it wasn't me who bought it. <laughs> yeah, right. But that's a beautiful. We were trying to sh- we were trying to shoot there. We were trying to shoot our catalog there, and um, I was t- on text with him, and he ended up selling it. He said it was a somebody during COVID who's kind of you only live once kind of gave him the right price for it, and he ended up selling it. So, which was I was kind of heartbroken because he that thing is ridiculous. I would say John Darian. He's. I just think he's incredible like I love I love the way he puts his house together in Provincetown I I just love everything about like I think he just has such an eye and it's like nothing is like fancy it's just soulful and um I don't know he's he's like somebody who can like go find a branch and like put it in a vase that's from you know, some garage sale and he just makes it look perfect. Well, there's a few, right? Uh, John Rosselli, who has forever collected the blue and white um, chinoiserie export stuff. He's been collecting it way before it was in vogue. So I always appreciate his collection. David Sloan, who owns Roseville Farm. He's got a place in Wellington and a place here in Millbrook, New York. He's got an unbelievable collection of equestrian stuff, whether it's teardrop tailors that he's repurposed for tailgating, whether it's old tack signs or old tack. He's done a beautiful job. But more importantly with David, it's not just finding the pieces. He passionately does the work himself or finds makers that can help him um, to to bring them back to kind of where they should be or what, what he wants on his farms. So he does a beautiful job and I totally appreciate that he gets into it. He's not too precious himself. It's not just a, I collect there and I, therefore I have people fix. He does it himself. And I think that's, what's cool about it. And the other one, which is kind of a, a, a great character that everyone loves is Tom Samet, right? Tom Samet's always been um, a great a designer uh, based out in the Hamptons, and he has amazing collections from you know Hermes to Gucci to whatever. But uh, the thing that I've always appreciated about Tom and kind of my journey of getting to know him is that dude collects friends like nobody's business. And I think that is a as much as he loves his material things, he loves the people and the people connection too. So he's always done a great job of collecting people. The one that I looked up to always was my dad. He passed away last year. He was really into handwritten books, manuscripts, and uh, several years before he passed away, he donated them to old libraries. This guy, Doug, that has done all the picking and collecting uh, for Ralph Lauren over the years, I mean, he is the OG. I mean, he is 
someone with such impeccable taste and understanding well ahead of the curve of, you know, what people are collecting from, you know, Western objects to, you know, English gentry, not only with small objects in decorative arts and watches and jewelry, he was also really kind of the man in the vintage world for clothing and stuff like that as well. And obviously he was hired by the right person, Ralph Lauren. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Hopefully Ralph uh, leaves him that Bugatti or something. I think Doug's done pretty good for himself. I don't know if Bugatti level, but I'm sure he's done pretty good. How about the goat? So who do you look up to in the collecting world? I have one great friend who is a true collector. I won't say his name, but he is an amazing collector. As far as if you went in his garden, you'd know every single rose he's got he's growing there. Every piece of furniture, every book, every piece of jewelry, every piece of picture on the wall, every piece of objet, there's a book on every piece. Well read. He loves what he does. It's in his is in his DNA. Loves it. Loves it. Honestly, truly loves it. And he is someone that is truly inspiring to collect. Another one is a guy who lives in Ibiza who collects people, great people. And what they do is they all collect different things. And he's part of all their lives. Amazing. It really is amazing because it's not, it's done with the right spirit. So it's a lovely thing to watch. So they, they inspire me. That, that inspires me if I can follow them. I'm sure you know Matthew Hranick and Yolanda Edwards. He of William Bell Project and Yolanda has a magazine called Yolo Journal. And they were a long, um, amazing photographer, creative directors at Conde Nast Publications. And, and Maddie, I knew from a, you know, for a very long time, um, we were both assistants in the fashion world. He was a photo assistant for a photographer and I assisted at GQ magazine and we traveled on shoots together all over the world and became really good friends. And he and he and Yolanda have developed these amazing magazines that they do, um, William Brown Project and Yellow Journal, as we mentioned. And I think they have such a, a really a smart appreciation for clothing, experiences, travel, places, food um, that I I find uh, incredibly appealing. And I I think the information they share is really valuable. And they travel to a lot of vintage markets tag sales. Um, they have a house in the south of France where they have, uh, they're always sharing um, incredible finds from villages nearby. And, and Yolanda has great collections that she'll photograph from time to time, you know, like hotel room keys and uh, vintage matchbooks. And I mean, all, all different kinds of things that are ephemera from the world of travel that I always find fun to look at. The hunt or the ownership? Which one do you enjoy more? Oh, the hunt. I still do it. I'm 80 years old, and I am at the swap meets at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Good for you. That's great. Keeps me young. The hunt. <laughs> that is the, it is the best part. Yeah, absolutely. Wearing a watch is, is fun, but making that transaction and finding the thing that you're looking for to me is... Oh, and, and, and if that watch has a story, it's even, it means more. And, I, and I, I link every watch to a story. If it doesn't have one, I don't feel emotionally so deeply connected to it. The hunt is always fun. The ownership, I think, 
should always be better, but sometimes I've been a bit disappointed, particularly when you're buying kind of sight unseen in the last five years. You haven't always been able to travel to places, and so maybe you bought something online and you get it, and you're just a bit like, oh, okay. <laughs> Quite what I thought. I enjoy the educational component. Yeah. That's the part. The transactional component, like, honestly, as I said again in the Hodinkee thing, a, a trained monkey could do transactions. There's like nothing to doing a transaction. You know, there's nothing. It's the educational modality that leads to the confidence in order to make the transaction confidently and, you know, with real assurance that you're, 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 that, that, that the collector, whoever you're advising is, is, you know, they really are getting the thing that they want at the, at the correct price. Maybe not always at a bargain price, but at the correct price, that's the goal. And they really know what they're buying is, is truthfully the, the, the best example by the best artist you know, of its type that they can access given the financial constraints that they're dealing with them. That's really what it's about. I, I enjoy both. I really do enjoy tracking something down. I enjoy making the deal. But ideally, you've got to enjoy the object more than the hunt because if, if not, then you're just chasing a high. And I think that can get you into trouble. So the chase or the sale, was it like more fun negotiating the deal to sell FRC or seeing it come to fruition? I mean, well, it was always fun getting the check. I will say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, I'm fascinated by business and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued and I try and learn on everything that I do. So it was an amazing learning experience going through the process, dealing with the team over there at Cheesecake who were wonderful. Uh, you know, we have attorneys and bankers. And um, so that that process got my creative juices flowing in a in a business way. And so that was fun and exciting to be able to come up with the uh, idea of where we're at and then get it to the finish line. And then, like I said, the, the reward for all that fun work is getting a great big check. Uh, it was really exciting. And uh, so the whole process was amazing. I think the career of a collector and, and an item are hunt, acquisition, ownership, and possession. And then eventually one day they part again. I think the most satisfying to me are those on the early stage, whether it's in my function as a hunter for Philips. Um, I also contribute consignments to the Philips auction, collectors who want to talk to me and I bring their watches to, to the auction. The most satisfying is the discovery, the initial contact, the research, the negotiation, the hunt, the moment we secure it, then the temporary ownership that we as specialists at Philips have, that means this two, three, four months that we live with an item between the moment this contract, the consignment agreement is signed and the auction. Yes, of course, the auction is very satisfying because it, you know, does justice to the watch and our work, but it's actually so much more fun, the early phase. And I feel the same as, um, as, as a watch nerd. The dreaming, the waiting, the suffering, the hunting, the discovering, this first sort of should I, shouldn't I, sort of the flirt with the object, all the way to, yes, I go for it, to the moment you put it on your wrist, yes, she's mine, on my wrist, that ownership is extremely satisfying. The sale? 
even if somebody like with that Omega that I mentioned earlier on as a teenage boy is eventually resulting in, in, a, in a commercial uh, gain is actually kind of not even that exciting. Most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Yeah, I do. Much to my wife's chagrin. Uh, I just, I like, I don't know. I, once I lock in on something, I, I think I've got a little OCD. So um, I just become obsessed with it. And, you know, and it's kind of, it, it's fun in the beginning for somebody like my wife. Go like, oh, it's so cool. We know what to get them. But then it's like, there's always a point of like, okay, you've got enough of whatever it is you're, you're now into stop getting right. these things. <laughs> um, but it's just, I, I don't quite know where that comes from. You know, it's, I mean, I was an only child, so I don't know if that has anything to do with it or if it's just, you know, we just appreciate nice stuff. And I've always been kind of hate the idea of things getting thrown away, you know, anything that still has a purpose, you know, I always feel that way about people on up, you know, like anything that is just sort of cast aside, whether it's a person or a, or an item that just has a lot of use and life left in it. And that makes me really sad, you know, when I see you know, beautiful old buildings getting torn down or, or, or you find out that something got thrown away that you see a picture of that was so gorgeous and somebody didn't know what it was and threw it away. You know, I, I think, I think as collectors, sometimes we almost kind of see ourselves as, as keepers of, of history and, and beauty and, and, and the accomplishments of past generations, you know, all that workmanship that went into stuff. Some people gravitate toward being collectors, and I would say that's been, been the case for me. I will fill any space you give me. So if you told me my new home was the Grand Canyon, Come back in about two years, and you will find it completely filled and overflowing. I spend 24 hours a day either buying stuff, looking for stuff, desiring stuff, uh, trying to do anything I can to find the next item, whatever it might be. So I definitely have the collector's gene. Early on, I, I collected comic books, um, and you know, and my son was trading Pokemon at an early age. Um, yeah, I think I think you. I think strangely, maybe because you're born into a family that collects, that it it becomes inherent not, to you. Yeah, not abnormal. Do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? I didn't think I was, but I definitely. Yes, I I would now admit I have, and, and I I don't know if a collector's gene is a healthy thing, <laughs> or or uh, it's it's definitely I think I have a problem to be now that you're kind of t asking me all these questions. I'm like reflecting. I'm like God, I might have a problem because I <laughs> I collect everything. I, I really now I think about it, it's like geez, everything from furniture to watches to you know art. It's a little OCD. I think I had certainly a predisposition towards collecting, but I wasn't an obsessive collector. I just think that now, you know, everything has come together and that marriage of, of beautiful new things and beautiful old things and the depth information and, and the resources available and the time that I can spend and the exposure that I get to these different things through different through different medium and through different people mean that it's become increasingly a part of my life. And so I wouldn't flatter myself to say that I had the collector's gene, but I certainly had the 
collector's inclination, I would say. I don't think I have the collector's gene. Um, like I'm never just going for, a, you know, one category of things that I'm just like amassing a collection of them. I'm kind of picking things just like as they come. And if I feel like an emotional attachment, um, so yeah, I, I don't think I have it. Do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Ah, oh, well, I'm a hoarder, so yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I was born with it. I think, I think I've developed it. Certainly, um, I think, as I said, my seeing my dad pick up various bits and bobs uh, influenced me. But over the years, I've definitely, I've definitely become, in my own kind of small way, something of a collector. So yeah, I think collector's gene maybe hoarder's gene <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I i think i i have you know i always you know wanted to curate like i hadn't i just have this interest to curate something uh even with photography you know i i i, I never really um even you know old childhood toys i don't want to throw them out so there is something to be said, I guess, with that, with, I guess, holding on to small pieces of the past um, that tells a story. Do I think that I have collector conditioning? I absolutely do. Uh, I think I, I inherited that from my grandparents, mostly. My parents, I wouldn't say, are terribly enthusiastic about materialist things. However... However, they did teach me the value of having a nice thing and buying something that lasts. So even when you know I was growing up in sort of a, a small house in a small town, living fairly conservatively, they always had a nice, a nice car, you know, and they always had really nice, uh, you know, cookware, and they had really nice luggage, and they still have it. You know, so whether it was my grandparents who uh, had more accumulation but came with the stories, and then you balance that with, you know, my folks teaching me the value of, of buying something of high quality once and keeping it for as long as possible, the conditioning is there. I think I came out of my mother's womb, you know, grasping for some funny little. Uh bottle or tray or probably a painting that I saw when I opened my eyes for the first time. Definitely. <laughs> but has it been enhanced and has it evolved over time? For sure. You know, amazing. But it was there, maybe a little dormant, but kicking around for sure. My mother, even when they, they weren't doing great, uh, my mother always would kind of go to flea markets, go to swap meets, look for different things. Uh, and really, uh, she really instilled that uh, in me and then, you know, taking it to the next level with uh, George and some of the collectors who, who uh, bought some of the animation art and comic art from me when I was in high school and, and college. Uh, so, you know, once you kind of get in and around it, it becomes a, a bug. It's uh I won't go as far to say it's an illness. I guess it is for some, but uh, the simple answer is yes. I was 
I don't know if I was born with it, but it certainly I had it by a very young age. Recently, my mom has been going through all of these notebooks and boxes of things that were her mom's and her grandmother's. And and my mom found these notebooks that were basically like scrapbooks that my grandma made, and they are just like mine. And there's like all of these other things that she's found that my grandma collected that are just like what I collect, you know, stationary postcards. This. And so I was like, okay, I think, I mean, it skipped over my mom, but it definitely, I think I got it. Do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? <laughs> I don't know, but it sure as hell feels good. Uh, <laughs> something I enjoy. I don't know if it's a nature or nurture thing. There was a, a kid's book back in the day, and I'm sure it's it's got a name that everyone knows, about some child, um, maybe he was an orphan or maybe he was in a, a, a foster care sort of situation. But the guy collected things that meant something to him, even as a small child, and displayed them preciously, and they were his treasures. And I remember that book to this day of like starting that, you know, it's not that you have to have everything, but you have to appreciate what you have. I don't think so, actually. I, because I, I, because I don't collect that many things, but I, I do know what I like, and oftentimes I like multiple versions of that thing because I like, like for example, thinking about matcha bowls. They're so they're all handmade. There's so many different artists that make them. Like I feel like I'll, uh, uh, it's impossible to be satisfied by having three. Like there's always another one that's interesting, and ooh, that's a cool one. I never saw seen that before, and I love that glaze or I love that shape. So to me, it's, I have an appetite for, for, for more of that kind of thing, but I don't collect a lot of stuff. Like right now it's primarily watches and like matcha bowls, you know, and, and that's kind of it. So there's other things that I have that I, I could imagine myself collecting, but I, I don't. So I don't naturally go towards collecting things that I like. I tend to collect things that I really, really like. Um, and there's only a few of those things that I'm really, really into. And also just the practical nature of some things. Cause like, I like cars a lot, but I would never want to collect cars. My mom, you know, right down to like dumpster diving and garbage picking, you know, like that is still part of my everyday life. Like the amount of like crap that I pull off the street here in Brooklyn and come home with it, you know, like. The, at one point, the backyard was just filled with, you know, Webers that people were throwing out. And I was like, look at all these Webers, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, that comes from someplace. And I, I, I think, yeah, I would say it's some in, in one of those chromosomes. For sure, I inherited genes that accelerated that process because my dad, um, everyone in my family is, I don't know if it's amassing, hoarding. Uh, chasing, accumulating. They all love to hunt the, the flea markets, the antique shows, the auctions. It's, uh, I think it's a family thing, yes. I bought literally a silver dish yesterday. I have no idea why I bought a silver dish yesterday. I walked, I'm in, I'm in LA, I saw it in a secondhand shop. It was a beautiful piece of old silver. It wasn't crazy money, but it was just sitting there. I asked the man the price in the shop. He gave me the price. I said, I'd like to buy it. I didn't ask for a discount. I just bought it. Full retail, just thought it was beautiful. And I don't know what to do with it. I'll just go in and I might create something with it or hang it. So I don't know. It's just something really pretty. So it must be. 
I just like to buy things. I like to get excited. I love to know, you know, something's coming and you're going to see it and you're going to put it somewhere. And with the greatest thing is to buy something and go, huh, I found just the spot. Do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Oh, for sure. Looking at my dad, I mean, he was always buying something. <laughs> Do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? <laughs> I would say that you have convinced me that I have been. <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. I understand what I want and why I want it. I think that's really important. You know, I think you have to know why you're buying stuff and why you're collecting stuff. You know, it, it's, it's for me, it's, an, it's, 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 you know, it, sometimes it goes back to like my, the watch that I bought, you know, 25 years ago. It's, you know, you're making money, you want to spend money on something. Yeah. You have to, you have to take care of responsibilities first. And, and a lot of things I don't own today that I want to own that I want to be irrational and buy, but I have responsibilities. I have kids, I have a business. But um, yeah, I hope to acquire more watches. I hope to have some more cool pieces of furniture. I hope to buy some vintage Lego sets that are, you know, crazy priced. Maybe I'll have a cool, uh, cool car one day. I don't know. But uh, I definitely want to have more stuff. And I, and I think what makes it really feel good is that, you know, I'm not doing it by myself. You know, I'm doing it with people, you know, people who are helping me along the way with, with uh, advice. And also people are enjoying it with me. You know, my kids will enjoy everything I buy. You know, my wife will enjoy everything I buy, you know? And I think that's important. You know, I'm not buying anything to put it on a shelf. Um, it's, it's for, for people around, it's for people who come to our house. You know, if, if I buy an old travel poster and it costs a thousand dollars, you know, I want people who come over our house to have dinner, to see it and to think it's cool and to look at it. And then for me to talk to them about it and to like, maybe, maybe get them interested in it and maybe they don't buy an original, maybe they buy a replica, but it's, it's fun to share this stuff. It's not something I want to just have all to myself. Do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? I don't know. Honestly, I really don't. I mean, certainly I think growing up with my mother specifically, who was a collector from the time I was very young and seeing artwork in the house and asking questions about it and having her answer, you know, oh, well, why did that man draw a picture of a soup can? Why is a soup can art? Those sorts of things are formative on somebody who's very young. But whether I have that gene or I don't have that, I don't know if there is such a thing. Um, I think all of these things can be like a fire, you know, can kind of slowly w with a small amount of, you know, application be be started and then fanned into, you know, a tremendous roaring flame or not, <laughs> uh, depending on a number of, ex you know, extenuating circumstances. So, but certainly I think that if it's not the nature component, which is being born with it, certainly the nurture component uh, and particularly uh, growing up with my mother, I, I have to think played a really large part. I was 100% born with the collector's gene. It's real. It exists. You can't escape it. There's no <laughs> rehab, right? You can't get it. You can't go 28 days without collecting and it goes away. You're stuck with it. Um, yes, I was born with it. It's in my DNA. I can't shoot hoops. Um, that's also a gene, but I, I definitely can collect. I was born with it. All right. That does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio. <laughs>